Alright, well we begin our discussion of the Eucharist, which is a three-week discussion exploring the history and uh, reality of the Eucharist. We've talked about baptism and confirmation, but now we move on to uh, this sacrament. Now the Eucharist is uh, quite simply central to Christian experience. I uh, don't say it's central to Catholic experience uh, because I don't uh, want you to think that this is something just for Catholics in a, in a denominational sense. Because if what we say of the Eucharist is true, uh, then it is central to human experience. It's central to the cosmos, it's central to the world, it's central to my life uh, and to yours, and it's central to the life of every human being, uh, not just the Catholic Church in an institutional or denominational sense. If what we say about the Catholic Church, uh, if what we say about the Eucharist is true, it's larger than just a Roman Catholic ritual or sacrament. Uh, but to review a bit, you know, we've talked about the church as communion, as organism, as the body of Christ which speaks to you and engages you via word and sacrament, right? Uh, we've talked in the past two weeks about baptism and confirmation, which is really sort of two sacraments that's one event. Uh, baptism uh, uh, is a sacrament. That is, it is, a, it is a sign which participates in what it signifies. Right? That is, the symbol of baptism is water and the invocation of the Holy Spirit. It, and it symbolizes when we, when we dunk you into the water and pull you out. That is, a symbol, uh, that is a symbol of dying with Christ, of going into the waters of death and then rising out, right? It's a symbol that points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's a sacrament, so it not only points to the, that reality, it actually participates in it. You're, you're actually entering into the real life passion of Jesus. And confirmation that Father Edwin spoke of last week the, the bishop lays his hands upon your head, symbolizing the descent of the Holy Spirit. It's, it, it points to the descent of the Holy Spirit as a sign does. But it participates in it too. The Holy Spirit does genuinely come down upon you, right? When you see a stop sign, it's just a sign. It doesn't participate in some metaphysical reality we call stopness, right? Um, that's the difference between a sign and a sacrament. And the Eucharist is a sign uh, that participates in what it signifies. And the Eucharist goes by many, many names. Uh, you could, it's on the handout that we're going to give you tonight. Uh, it goes by the name of uh, the Mass. goes by the name of the breaking of the bread. goes by the name of, some, in some circles, agape, the love feast, right? Uh, if you are orthodox-minded, if you're an Easternizer, um, Sometimes it's called the synaxis, right? Which is very fancy. Uh, most commonly it is called the Eucharist, which just comes from the Greek word meaning thanksgiving, uh, which uh, is the common uh, New Testament uh, term. So to discover the Eucharist tonight, we, it is, as we will do in almost all of these discussions, begin with scripture. And you'll remember a few weeks ago Father Bob began his discussion of baptism on the day of Pentecost. Right? Uh, Peter uh, stood up and preached the very first sermon in Christian history and at the end of it he capped it off with an invitation to be baptized. Right? Uh, because he preached the gospel and the response was uh, what shall we do? And Peter's response was uh, be baptized and repent. Just after, a few verses after that invitation of baptism, we get a, a sort of summary statement, an update, so to speak, of uh, what the early church was doing 
and, and what they were up to. Uh, throughout Acts of the Apostles, Luke, who, who's the writer of Acts, uh, will stop and pause in the narrative and sort of um, give a summary. Okay, this is how it looks. And the first sort of summary statement is a very famous verse there at the top, Acts 2.42, which describes essentially what the earliest church was doing. What practices were they practicing? You know, And it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Okay, these are some distinct things. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is what? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's died. He's risen again, right? Um, and that creates a fellowship, the communion, right? Koinonia in the Greek, which is, could be translated communion, as well as fellowship. So they were about learning, right? About studying the gospel, hearing the gospel. But then it says, and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Now the prayers we'll talk about a little bit in a few weeks, uh, months probably. Um, in this context it probably simply means uh, they're good Jewish times of prayer. You know, because we'll see in the next chapter Peter and John are going into the temple for the normal time of prayer. Uh, but the breaking of the bread, that is uh, lingo. That is a, a common verbiage in the New Testament in, in certain bits and pieces and in some of the earliest Christian writing for uh, the Eucharist, right? For uh, the service of Holy Communion. And we see one example of that at the bottom uh, where uh, Paul is preaching. He says, on the first day of the week, prob probably Sunday, when we were gathered together, this is Luke talking, um, uh, when we were gathered together to break bread, right? Uh, Paul talked with him, intending to depart the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. He, he preached a bit too long. You think I talked too long. Um, this is a funny story, right? Because he preached so long that some brother was up on the uh, top uh, steps of a, of a, of a, like a two-story building, and he fell down, and he broke his neck, and he died. Right? It's a great story. And then Paul runs up to him, probably feeling a little bit guilty, and uh, raises him from the dead. Right? Uh, and then Paul got sued, and then... The rest of the apostles were crying for tort reform, um, uh, which is not, that's, that's a little bit apocryphal. Um, but you get this example. The first day of the week, they're breaking bread, right? Very simple. Now, uh, like I said, the, the Christians got this tradition of breaking bread uh, from the Lord, as we'll see uh, in a minute. But the Lord didn't invent uh, this ritual, this ceremony, this sacrament of the Eucharist out of thin air. Uh, he gave the gift of the Eucharist uh, from out of a thoroughly Hebrew mindset and a thoroughly Hebrew uh, sacred imagination and idiom. And it begins really here on Mount Sinai. Uh, this is a picture that I took from Mount Sinai um, in uh, 2006 when I went there um, and made my way up to the top. It's a, a mountain today referred to as Jebel Musa uh, in the Arabian Peninsula and um, or the Sinai Peninsula, I'm sorry. Um, and it's really here that we can begin to understand uh, the Eucharist. Y you know from your <clears throat> vacation Bible school days that the descendants of Jacob went down into Egypt and they became slaves, right? And then you've all seen that cartoon, Prince of Egypt. Moses is called up and he leads the people out, uh, out of Egypt through the Red Sea, which doesn't go well for the Egyptian army. And then they end up in the Sinai Desert. And it, I can understand how one could very easily get lost because it's the middle of nowhere. Um, so they wander about for 40 years, but they make their way to Jebel Musa, to this Mount Sinai. And it's on Mount Sinai that uh, God calls Moses to ascend. Come up the mountain, he said. But don't let anybody else, don't even let your animals come near the mountain. Because even if an animal touches the mountain, they should be stoned and killed. Right? Your people ought to purify themselves and fast, but you, Moses, come up. And what did God give Moses 
on Mount Sinai? The commandments, Torah, the law, right? Um, the uh, constitution of the Hebrew people. It, uh, Mount Sinai uh, marks for the Jewish people to this day. Um, the foundational event. This is where, as it says in Exodus 19, this is where God for the first time said to Israel, you will be for me a royal priesthood. Right? You are my people. This is my covenant. This is Israel. Right? So this is where Israel began, truly, in a sense, um, on Mount Sinai. But there is a very, very interesting moment in Exodus after Moses comes down to deliver the Torah, the law, to, uh, to his uh, fellow Hebrews. He comes down and he gives it to them, um, reads it to them, and uh, they hear it and they accept it. And there is a ceremony, a ritual of ratification of the covenant. And so we get this very, very interesting passage. Exodus 24. Then he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So the Hebrews are like, okay, we hear the law, we got it, we're, we're going to live by it, it's ours, right? And so to ratify that agreement, that acceptance, what does it say? It says, and Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Right? Blood seals the covenant of God and Israel. Right? Between God and Israel. Now this is a very um, primitive and primeval sort of visceral thing. Right? Uh, this, this ancient idea that blood binds people together. Right? It's not actually ancient, but it still makes sense for us. I mean, uh, my little daughter and my little son are bound to me in blood, right? Uh, I love you all to bits, but uh, when it comes between you and them, watch out, right? Why? Because flesh and blood, uh, you know, has its ethical jealousies, which are quite appropriate, right? Um, but blood binds us together, and, the, and Moses is doing the same thing here by very grossly uh, sprinkling blood on the people. Or even, um, you know, when you were a kid, highly dumb thing to do, um, you would uh, you cut your thumb and your best friend would cut, let's be blood brothers. Which is really gross when you think about it. Um, and not something to be recommended. Um, but what are the kids trying to do there? They're trying to um, affect some sort of deeper bond in their friendship, right? It's almost instinctual that, that we know that blood binds us together, right? Um, and that's what's going on here. So let's think in very big, broad brushstrokes. The foundation of the people of Israel, the foundation of the covenant, is, is sealed in blood, right? Primitive, ancient. It's just natural. But then listen to what happens. This is where it gets really, really rare and, and, and unusual. It says, then, there in the middle, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, which is a great name, Abihu. One of you should name your kids Abihu, um, not me. But, um, uh, and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on them, uh, on the chief people of Israel. This is extremely rare in Jewish experience. Extremely rare in the Old Testament. I, I, only in, I think two other places it, does it say someone saw God. In the Jewish mind, God was so wholly other, so transcendent, that if you were to see Him, you would die. Right? It was a deadly thing to see God, something you couldn't behold. Moses, later on in Exodus, asks God, asks to see God. And what does God tell him? He says, hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you can look at my back. Right? Very anthropomorphic thing. But um, this idea that seeing God 
is, is unusual. It's, it's not done, right? But here, after the covenant is given, some of the elders, representative elders, come halfway up traditionally to that spot, which is called the largest basin, if you go. Um, and it says, uh, they saw the God of Israel. And of course, when they, their vision, this is, you see the language starting to break down. They have to go poetic, right? It says, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, uh, like the very heaven for clearness. I love that line for some reason, right? They can't, they're, they're failing to be able to describe what they're seeing, but they're seeing, right? Uh, and it says, and he did not lay a hand on them. See, even the writers going, this, this is unusual. They didn't die. They should have died when they see God, but they didn't see but they saw God and they didn't die, right? This is unusual. And then notice the very, very last line. They beheld God and ate and drank. Covenant, sealed in blood, seeing God in a meal whilst eating and drinking, right? Just keep those broad themes in your head as we continue our discussion tonight. Now, the, moving on to the New Testament. Uh, first to the Gospels. John 6 is the longest Gospel in John's Gospel. It's like 71 verses, I think. It is the Eucharistic chapter par excellence. If I were to give you any homework, it would be to read John 6, the whole of it. Uh, because in it you have uh, sort of the... Uh, powerful core of, of Christian Eucharistic understanding. But it's important to see the chapter as a whole. Cha John 6 begins on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, probably in Bethsaida, uh, out in the wilderness. And Jesus has got a bunch of crowds and followers behind him, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. And the um, uh, day's ending, and people are starting to get hungry. And at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, Jesus performs the, the, the feeding of the multitudes with the bread and the, and the few fish, right? This miraculous multiplica multiplication of the loaves. And the people are rightly impressed. And they begin to uh, think of Him as the Messiah. Now the reason they think of Him as the Messiah is because Jesus is doing, uh, by feeding of the 5,000, uh, or multitudes, we don't give it a number in John, by feeding of the multitudes with bread, Jesus has done a Moses-like thing, right? What did Moses do in the wilderness after he led him out of Egypt? Manna, right? Came down and fed the Hebrews. I believe that's Exodus 16, right? And so, and, and the reason that struck the Jews who were there and saw this, and the reason they said, oh, Jesus must be the Messiah, is because Jesus was doing something that uh, Moses did. And the reason that's important is because of a little uh, piece of prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, which, 1815 to be exact, uh, a, a piece of prophecy that was extremely important in early Christian preaching. And that is, in Deuteronomy 1815, Moses said, there will come a prophet like me after me, and you must follow him. Right? So this is the prophecy of the, the prophet like unto Moses, right? And so in all the Gospels, Matthew and John in particular, uh, the Gospel writer is at pains to draw parallels between uh, Moses and Jesus, right? So like in Matthew's Gospel, um, Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount, just as Moses went up on the mountain and received Ten Commandments. Here you have Jesus um, feeding people in the wilderness with bread, right? So, and that's why they're looking at Jesus and said, this is the Messiah. This is the prophet like unto Moses. But of course the chapter doesn't end there, the story doesn't end there. The crowd gets worked up and they want to seize Jesus and make him a king, a political king. But Jesus isn't going for that. He escapes. And uh, the next story immediately after this is Jesus walking on the water. Right? Uh, the, the disciples go in a boat across the Sea of Galilee on their way to Capernaum. Jesus escapes. And then the next thing you know, Jesus is walking on the water and he gets into the boat. 
which is sort of John's way of saying, you know, okay, you know this Jesus is significant, but you're wrong to think he's just a political king. He, he's more, right? There's something divine about him. And so when he gets to the other side, it's a very interesting bit. He gets to the other side to Capernaum, and the crowds are there, some people who are there who are on the other side, and they notice that Jesus got, got out of the boat. But they knew that Jesus didn't get into the boat. And so there's a very enigmatic question where the, the, the guy, the, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? Which in John is a pregnant phrase, when did you get here? Which could be a question about when, when on earth did you get in the boat? But it also could be a, a deeper question about divine origin. When did you get here? You know, um, in the beginning was the word, right? Uh, and this is the preface to Jesus walking into the synagogue at Capernaum and talking about what he called the bread of life. Um, and so here we are. He says, um, in substance leading up to this discussion, he says, remember what I did for you in the, in the wilderness the other day with the bread. That's going to perish one day. That's, that's going to go through you like a goose. Remember the bread that Moses uh, gave to the Hebrews. Well, that bread perished and so did all the Hebrews. That bread that we, we've known about up until this point uh, is transient. It, it, it's fleeting. And then he says this. I am the bread of life. Now it's very interesting as well from the Greek. Anytime Jesus says, I am, ego uh, me, that's that evokes Exodus 13, I mean Exodus 3.14, where God gave his divine name to Moses, which was I am. Right? So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Again, if, for readers of John's Gospel, we know from the prologue that the Son of Man, the Word, came down from heaven. So it's an exact quote, really. This, bread can, that, that, uh, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Right? So Jesus is saying there is a bread that's coming down from heaven that is different, that you'll eat and you'll not die. And then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Alright, he's building his argument. There's bread that you'll perish with, there's living bread, I'm the living bread, right? If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, right? So Jesus says, there's this bread, and you need, you need it in order to live forever, and that's me, right? Up to this point, a good Jew's not being too disturbed. But then he says, <clears throat> uh, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is when people are starting to squirm. Right? And in the Greek, the flesh there, it's, the Greek word is sarx, which means the, the flabby bits under your arm. You know, uh, John could have used the more philosophically respectable word soma. Right? When Plato talked about the body, he talked about soma. But Jesus, I mean, John never uses that word. He uses the sort of carnal biological word. So Jesus right off the bat says, this living bread is my flesh, my sarx. Right? At this point, people are starting to freak. Right? Why? Because cannibalism is a taboo. Not just in Judaism, but across the board. The Jews then disputed among themselves. Some translations say murmur, which is the exact same verb used to describe what the Hebrews were doing in the desert, by the way. They were murmuring before the manna came. Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Very good question. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, or amen, amen, um, something important is about to come. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Notice how he pretty much just disregards a very good question. At every point in John's Gospel, I mean in, in chapter 6, uh, whenever you think Jesus really could use to clarify himself 
or correct himself or right the ship, he, he presses on the gas. He goes more intense. So he says, um, unless you eat the flesh and drink my blood, drink the, his blood, you have no life in you. Not only just eternal life, but life. Which is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And again, feeds there is not a very good trend. The literal sense is chew, gnaw, masticate, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So this bread of life that you must eat, that you must chew, the sarks of Jesus, gives you life and eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Eucharist, or, or I shouldn't fast forward, the, the, the blood and, and the flesh of Jesus that you must eat, which is the living bread, gives you life and eternal life, which means gives you resurrection. I will raise you up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. It's like he's trying to hammer home the identification, right? And he's speaking in a very shocking and literal way. People are getting bent out of shape. Um, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, abides is a very interesting verb as well. Uh, uh, menain in, in, the, in the Greek, which means sort of remain. When John saw Jesus come out of the water at his baptism, it's, John says, um, the Holy Spirit descended upon uh, Jesus and menain, remained on him. The exact same word that Jesus is using when he says, if you, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, you will remain in me, right? Uh, and, and the Father remains in the Son. So it's like, it's theological glue, so to speak. Um, and, the, and as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Now this gets around the cannibal problem, uh, for starters. Because um, it, we eat the flesh of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, fast forward. Um, but we're not cannibals. Why? Because the Eucharistic flesh of Jesus which we eat is risen. Right? It's not dead flesh. Um, sort of a technical bit, but it's important. Um, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So again, broad brushstrokes. Jesus identifies himself with the living bread that came down from heaven that you need to eat for life and eternal life. And this living bread is his sarks, his flesh that you must chew on and eat, and his blood that you must drink. And he speaks in grotesque, literal fashion. Um, and of course, this was intolerable for many, intolerable for many still. Uh, and John 6 does not end well. Uh, John, it's not a great PR day for Jesus. Uh, the, the, at the end of the chapter, you get the clue, you, you get the sense that all but the twelve are, have left. You get the sense that that's, that's it. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, it, it says very specifically, many left and went away and walked with him no more. Uh, and, uh, which by the way is John 666, which I've always found interesting. But, um, uh, an Orthodox priest pointed that out to me. Uh, but chapter and verse didn't come to the Bible till Reformation. Uh, fun nonetheless. But, at, but the, at the end, after this terrible PR moment where everybody left, right? What does Jesus do? He turns to the twelve, those who are left, and he says this. He says, after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, 6, 6. Uh, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away too? You want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Right? So Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples and say, boy, did I mess that up or what? Right? He turns around and he challenges the twelve. He says, you want to go? You know? Feel free. Uh, it's a provocative and powerful moment. And for me, this is, reading this, this is, this is where I began to believe in uh, the real presence. Uh, that is, our Catholic belief that 
Jesus is really present in the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. That he's really, really there. Not just symbolically, not just metaphorically, but really. Now this is, we're going to talk about transubstantiation. We're going to talk about, about that real presence in more detail next week. But before we even get to that technical bit, we just need to see where Catholics, not just Catholics, Orthodox Christians, some Anglicans, uh, where we get this idea of the real presence, this, this belief that Jesus is truly in the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. And it's here, John 6. And what convinced me is simply this. I believe Jesus was a good guy, right? Easy proposition to accept. I believe that he loved people. I believe that he wanted to save people, right? The Son of God, his whole name is Savior. So that make, um, people left, John 6, 6, 6. Many turned back and no longer went with him. If the loving Jesus, if all he had to do was take a few steps and say, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, you misunderstand. If all he had to do is walk two minutes and say, oh, no, please let me clarify myself. It's just a symbol. It's just metaphorical. You misunderstand me. Uh, he would have done it. He would have, he would have made that effort and not let people go possibly to their perdition, right? That's what made me start believing in the real presence. Jesus would have clarified himself, but he meant what he said. The people heard him, understood him, and left. And Jesus didn't clarify himself. He turned to the 12 and said, what about you, right? Uh, this is part of the logic of our belief that something more than a symbol is going on when we celebrate the Eucharist. All right. Now, uh, like I said, John 6 is the heart of our theology of the bread and the wine. And he taught this at Capernaum in the middle of his earthly ministry. Uh, but he did something at the end of his earthly ministry which is relevant and interesting as well. Uh, something that's recorded in three of the four Gospels. And that's, uh, he celebrated the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. It's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's not recorded in John, interestingly. Uh, although, uh, in John you get the, the ceremony of the foot washing which is only, uh, only recorded in John. And in some early Christian communities, uh, foot washing was considered uh, to be something like a sacrament as well. My theory is that that didn't gain universal acceptance because feet are gross. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Uh, but in the Last Supper, the night before he died, we all know the story, he celebrates a Passover meal in the upper room, which itself is paradoxical because his earthly life's coming to end, people are out to arrest him and crucify him, he's gonna be dead in a day, and he throws a party. It's remarkable to think about. Um, but anyway, here's Matthew's account and, and I'll read and we'll learn. Now as they were eating this Passover meal, it says Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. It's very interesting, by the way. C.S. Lewis has a very good comment. Uh, he says, Notice that Jesus says, Take, eat, not take, understand. Um, right? So you don't have to be a theologian. Um, take, eat. This is my body. And he took the, a cup, when he gave, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Right? which is poured out for you, I mean for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you I will not drink again this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, blood is identified with wine, which is identified with the inauguration of the new covenant. Think Exodus 24. Covenant 
they ate and drank and saw God. Right? This is Exodus 24 reprised. Right? Jesus gathers the twelve, symbolic of Israel, the twelve tribes. He has a meal. He breaks bread. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Evoking explicitly Sinai. Right? So we see here what Jesus is on about when he gives uh, the last, uh, the, the Lord's Supper. I, I mean, the parallel is quite striking, really. Um, this is the church being made uh, in Jesus' blood, just as Israel was made in the covenant when blood was sprinkled on the people. And then the elders ate and drank and saw God. Now notice in this passage, uh, verbs, the verbs. Uh, you can always learn a lot, really, in you, when you study the Gospels, when you study verbs, when you pay attention to the verbs. Um, and look at these verbs. Uh, took bread, took, blessed, broke, gave. Took, blessed, broke, gave, right? Was that four verbs? You will notice these verbs if you read the stories of the multiplication of the loaves. These verbs make an appearance. We'll notice in Luke 24, when, which we read here in a second, these verbs make an appearance again. Next time you go to Mass, listen to the words of the priest. Just before the institution narrative, before he picks up the bread, these verbs will make an appearance. These verbs um, evoke uh, in, in um, sort of with deep references what Jesus is doing. He took bread, essentially uh, his flesh. Some commentators see it as an allegory for the incarnation. Right? Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took bread. He blessed it with his own holiness, his own sanctification. He broke it and gave it. Symbolic of his death. Breaking the bread and, and giving it just as He gave His body on the cross, right? And we should note that for most of the twelve, uh, this is as close to Calvary as they got. Because most of them scattered, right? Just as for us, the Eucharist is as close to Calvary as we can get, right? But that's uh, fast-forwarding a bit. So you see here, Jesus, again in broad brushstrokes, is establishing a new covenant in His blood, just like the old covenant was established and ratified in blood. And by these verbs, He's indicating that this gift of the new covenant, this gift of blood, is given by means of His sacrifice, by means of His death, which will happen in a matter of hours when he says this, right? Uh, this is why, as we'll see in a few weeks, this is why the church refers to the holy sacrifice of the Mass. This is why the church says that the Eucharist is a true sacrifice, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, this is also why you have a rubric in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which tells us how to do church. The general instruction of the Roman Missal makes it very, very clear that on every Catholic altar, on, on or near every Catholic altar, there must be a representation of the crucified. There must be a crucifix, right? Because uh, in the minds of the faithful, they must always associate the altar with the cross, right? Because of these words and these verbs. Uh, there's also, uh, and also we learn something new about this blood, this Eucharist. Uh, it says, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Poured out is another verb that is evocative of sacrifice, evocative of death. But for what? For forgiveness. For our absolution. And just hold that in your thought. Uh, and then you have this remarkable line, I will tell you, I will not drink again the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in my father, with you in my Father's kingdom. I have no idea what that means. Um, it's quite enigmatic. Some fathers thought it might refer to heaven in the last day. But of course, it's generally believed there's not going to be sacraments in heaven. Right? Some early fathers 
thought that this was a reference to the celebration of the Eucharist itself that the early church celebrated. Uh, but so we see here, Jesus in the gift of the Last Supper was um, doing something very, very deep and very, very profound. And finally from the Gospels we read the Emmaus story. Uh, you know the story perhaps from vacation Bible school or your uh, Bible reading days. And uh, it's Easter Sunday, the end of Easter Sunday. And these two guys are walking out of Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. And they come across a stranger when they don't really know who he is and they don't recognize him. And the stranger sort of is acting ignorant. He doesn't know what the latest news is. He didn't hear about Jesus and the rumors that it, Jesus had risen. And they think he's kind of you know, out of it and spacey. But then they strike up a conversation with this man, and the man begins to talk to them about the Old Testament, and begins explaining the scriptures to them. Uh, and then uh, they're, they're really intrigued by this guy. And then they stop off in an inn for the evening to have a meal and probably stay the night, and this mysterious figure seems to be going on, and they beg him to stay, right? And his, this is where the story picks up. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. By the way, that's one of the most beautiful and powerful prayers you can pray. Stay with me. <laughs> stay with me. Beautiful prayer by Padre Pio that plays on this theme of stay with us. Right? Beautiful prayer to pray. Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Uh, Remember Jesus in John 6 talked about remaining with people. Uh, when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them. There are those four verbs again. Do you think Luke did that on purpose? Do you think he's trying to make a statement, right? He took it, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And what? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Think Exodus 24. They ate and drank and saw God. Right? And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he told us, talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? So you see exactly what the earliest Christians were thinking. Right? This was the new covenant effected in the blood of Jesus. And when you saw the bread and the wine being broken and distributed and given, you saw God. You saw him. Right? He was there. Uh, anyway, also uh, Luke 24 uh, is a great pattern to understand the liturgy, uh, the, the, the Eucharistic liturgy as a whole. The Mass is broken up basically into two parts. Liturgy of the Word, Liturgy of the Eucharist, right? Where you get all the readings and the homily, and then you got the sacrament of the Eucharist. Um, Luke 24 has Jesus talking to him about the Bible on the road, and then he goes to the table and breaks the bread, right? It's, this is where we get our pattern, so to speak. Now, turning to Paul the Apostle, uh, you, his Eucharistic teaching is found mostly in the Corinthian letters, uh, Corinthians 11 really, uh, two letters, could possibly be four letters, but that's an academic question. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, we get Paul's view of the Eucharist, and let's just dive right in. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now that's fascinating right off the bat. Jesus never met, I mean, Paul never met Jesus. Paul had a mystic vision of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. But where did Jesus, where did Paul receive from the Lord anything? He must be referring to the tradition. He must be referring to the message received from the apostles, which he feels strong enough to say, receive from the Lord, right? Reinforces our discussion about tradition. Um, so I received, I delivered it to you, uh, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks broke it. There's three of the four verbs. And said, this is my body uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's this phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Or the missile today says, do this in memory of me, I think. Now, what do we mean remembrance? Rem to remember in the, in, the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is a powerful thing. It's not just recall an event like I remember November 22nd, 1963. To remember in scriptural terms 
is to make the past present, right? The psalmist would say, uh, Lord, remember your covenant. And the psalmist is not saying, please remember it. You know, he's saying, act on it now, right? Or, or like when, um, you know, uh, married couple having trouble and the, and the wife says, uh, remember the vows you took on our wedding day. She's not asking the dude to just recall an event. She's saying, be faithful. Pony up, you know. Straighten up and fly right. Remembering is a powerful thing. So that's what Jesus meant when He said, do this in remembrance of Me. Make the past present. Right? In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Again, that's all based on those verbs that evoked the passion of Christ when Jesus gave the bread on the, on the uh, Holy Thursday. Um, now, this Eucharist, and we'll talk more about this later, has, uh, when Father Edwin talks in a few months, uh, about the moral impact of the Eucharist. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Right? That is, just as the Hebrews on the Sinai Peninsula had to fast and purify themselves before they could dare approach the mountain of the Lord. Christians are supposed to purify themselves before they approach the sacrament. This is why, in short, the church has a penitential rite at the beginning of the Mass. We say, uh, I confess to Almighty God, to you, my brothers and sisters, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. This is why the church teaches that if you are in a state of mortal sin, which we'll talk about later, Father, we'll clarify all that, um, uh, you, you should go to confession before you receive the Eucharist, right? Uh, this is straight from Paul. And he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread of, and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks the, uh, without discerning the body drinks judgment on himself, which is one of my favorite lines out of Paul. Um, eats and drinks without discerning the body. That is, not necessarily you need to be a theologian and come to the dogma of transubstantiation, or doctrine rather. The, uh, it's right, you have to discern the body. That is, um, I have to see Chris Kramer as my sister in Christ. Right? Paul and Jesus and the church universally says, if Chris and I have a, a bust up and we get so angry at each other that we're not at peace, both of us ought not to go to the Eucharist until we seek reconciliation. That why? I have to discern the body. That is, I have to see that we belong in the same body, that we're brothers and sisters. Right? So the Eucharist in Paul's teaching clearly has a moral component. Um, anyway, we can move on. Uh, very quickly, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That Greek word there is koinonia. Is it not a communion in the blood of Christ, right? Uh, the bread which we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, right? So just as Chris and I, sorry to use a Chris, you right there in front of me. The, uh, when Chris and I eat the Eucharistic bread, either from the same altar as we do at, here at St. Rita, or from opposite ends of the globe. It's one bread. It's one Jesus. And so when we come together to eat one bread, that puts us in a bind. We're bound together. That means I owe her um, a, a certain loyalty as my sister in Christ. Uh, and she owes me a certain loyalty as her brother. Um, anyway, so, uh, and we, we can talk about this, well let's read, let's read on and talk a little bit. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Uh, what do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Uh, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? What he's saying there is quite Paul existed in a very pluralistic society. Uh, he goes to Corinth and, and, and he says, the first thing I notice is that there are many gods and many lords in Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9. The, um, 
What Paul is saying is that Christians who have faith in Jesus and who are bound together in the celebration of the Eucharist, they're cultically bound. They're bound by, the, by, by sacred ties. And that means uh, that they cannot participate in cultic rituals that say something else, that symbolize something else, right? So there is, like just as Chris and I um, are Catholic brother and sister, and we celebrate in the Eucharist together, if I were to go out and to receive uh, communion in my old Disciples of Christ Church, what I would be saying by that ritual act, I would be saying that I belong to the Disciples of Christ family, which I, which I don't, I love them very much, but, but I don't belong to that family, right? Uh, it's, it's um, there are blood ties in the church's understanding of of herself, right? Uh, and it's very analogous, and sorry to be crude, there's no kids here anymore. Um, I only sleep with my wife, right? I don't sleep with anybody else. Not even tempted, right? Why? Because I have communion with her, and it's a jealous and ethical communion, right? Um, and if I were to uh, experience communion outside of her, uh, that would not be good, right? That's the analogy. Right? I see grinning, um, but it's true. Um, and this is uh, why you know we, we love Buddhists, we love Muslims, uh, but th they're not part of our common life. Right? This is why, and I know it's I know it's really really hard to understand, and I'll, I'll hold your hand through it uh, so you can come to an understanding as much as possible. And it is very hard to understand. I understand. I understand. It's hard to understand. That is, the church's teaching on why non-Catholics can't receive communion. It does seem really harsh and legalistic and brutal. But the church's, it, Chris and I, for example, belong to the discipline of the Catholic Church. You, you are about to, but Chris and I are obliged to certain um, responsibilities and activities. And canon law fully applies to us. We're in sort of the household. Um, a Methodist doesn't. He or she is not bound to canon law of the Catholic Church. Right? Uh, we're not saying that the Methodist is somehow farther away from God than us. Not at all. Uh, in fact, it's oftentimes closer. But what we're saying is that our vertical communion has a horizontal aspect. We all belong to the same family and it has a visible dis discipline. Um, and so that's why the church has this uh, uh, has the Eucharistic discipline that she has, which actually is nothing more than the New Testament's Eucharistic discipline. Um, but I know it's really hard to understand, and, and I'll try and explain it as we go on. Um, maybe Father Edwin could come up with a, a better explanation. But anyway, well, this is this fa famous line, which he's actually talking about excommunication, which is funny. He says, uh, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leaven, uh, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity of truth. That is, this Eucharist, this family of the Eucharist, needs to be, needs to endure in its integrity, right? And not get mixed up with false gods. And also, just because Paul's talking about demons and other religions, doesn't mean the analogy suggests uh, that Methodists are demonic, um, and not at all. Um, there might be a few demonic Methodists, but I've never met them. Um, that's a joke. I'm trying to be funny. There we are. Appreciate that. Um, finally, and I'm getting, I'm wrapping up. If you were to read the letter to the Hebrews, uh, you would, uh, you could read it all in one sitting. It's better than TV. If you were to read the whole letter of the Hebrews, you would understand more than I. Because in Hebrews, we are given a picture of Jesus Christ, the high priest. We're given a picture of what the Eucharist affects what the Eucharist does, what the Eucharist um, uh, uh, allows uh, through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews, the two passages we're going to look at, Jesus is portrayed as the high priest, the Jewish high priest. The high priest entered into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the inner sanctum of the Jewish temple, once a year to offer, uh, to make an offering for the sins of the people, right? And he had to tie a rope around him and go in. And, uh, you know, this is the symbol of the atonement. 
Yom Kippur, right? Um, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is not only like that high priest that goes into the Holy of Holies once a year, uh, he's the perfect one, right? So this is what he says. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, that is not the physical temple, uh, he entered once for all into the holy places, the Holy of Holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience uh, from dead works to, to serve the living God. Uh, Jesus is saying quite simply that his, uh, the Hebrews, writer of the Hebrews is saying, the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of animals. And so, the blood of animals really only has a shelf life of a year. <laughs> you know, to be speak very, very simply. The blood of Jesus is eternal. It's perfect. It's innocent. Right? So, there's no need for the Jewish high priest anymore. Right? Because we have Jesus. Um, uh, and then we come to Hebrews 10, which says much of the same thing. It says, And every priest stands daily at a service service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, he sat down at the right hand of, the God, of God, waiting for that time until all his enemies should be, she may, she be, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the Hebrews writers again is saying, Jesus' sacrificial offering, his priestly offering, was perfect. It doesn't need to be repeated. Right? And this is the, 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 the excellent point that the Protestant reformers were making uh, in the 16th century. Because there was great confusion. Um, a lot of it was terminal, uh, uh, terminal, uh, ling linguistic. Um, and, and some of it was uh, cultural. One, the cultural aspect was there's some really ridiculous, uh, superstitious nonsense going on. There's a lot of corruption going on with indulgences and chantry masses, things that rightly uh, deserved um, the judgment of the Lord and the, the fire of the Protestants. Uh, but there was a lot of just linguistic confusion. There was an idea among Protestant reformers that the Catholic Church believed that the sacrifice of Christ was repeated numerically on the altar, that somehow on the altar you were re-sacrificing Jesus, right? So technically, the church never taught that officially, right? may have been believed popularly. The church, as we'll see, believes that this, the sacrifice of the altar is a representation. It's not a numerical re-sacrifice. Um, but anyway, you see more of the same. And the reason, in short, uh, we believe that it's a representation, that it's the real sacrifice that you encounter, is that wonderful little line from Hebrews 13. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always a priest. He was a priest then, he's a priest now, right? So therefore, the sacrifice that we experience is the genuine sacrifice of Calvary. Now, finally, we finish with John's revelation and what uh, he saw on the Lord's Day at Patmos. Now, think of Exodus 24. They ate and drank and they saw God. John saying this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits under the, on the throne and to the Lamb. Lamb evokes what? The Passover. The Passover Lamb. The sacrifice. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb that was God. The, the Lamb that's God. Uh, the Lamb of God. Um, and uh, this is the Lamb that was slain but is alive. Right? So people are adoring the, 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 the sacrificial lamb. Uh, and the angels standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their knees and before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving. Right? So just as the elders of Israel went halfway up Mount Sinai and they ate and drank and they saw God, in the Revelation, John sees the elders and the angels and tons and tons of people adoring the lamb that was slain, right? 
all these themes of covenant, of sacrifice, of Eucharist, sort of are smashed together into this wonderful apocalyptic vision that draws in the whole of creation. Uh, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they come? I said to him, sir, you know. These are the ones who are uh, coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blending of it, things here that just it's powerful. First, uh, by the way, if you're a catechumen, that is if you're going to get baptized, you're going to get baptized in a white robe uh, because of this. Um, uh, they wash their robes in the blood, which is a beautiful way to sort of smash together the symbolism of baptism and the Eucharist, these two sacraments of initiation, right? And what does it do? The, the, their, their, their robes are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Do this for the forgiveness of... My blood is poured out for what? The forgiveness of sins. White, symbolizing, of course, purity, forgiveness. Um, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, who sits on His throne and who will shelter them with His presence. Jesus said in John 6, I will remain with them. Right? Um, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Again, a Johannine image. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You read that a lot at funerals, at funeral mass. You can understand why, right? This beautiful vision that is so evocative of the covenant and of the new covenant and of the Eucharist and of the sacrifice of Jesus and how it affects us. Um, there at the top in the blue. Uh, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to close herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now again, these smashing of images and themes. Here, the, 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 the sacrificial theme of the Lamb the Eucharistic theme of the Lamb is now blended with the great nuptial theme of the Bible, right? Throughout Israel's history, Israel is the bride, God is the bridegroom, and the whole point is for them to get together in union, right? And here John is calling in that great theme and saying, this marriage of Israel and God is affected when the Lamb is ready, when the Eucharist is ready, right? This is why, when you go to Mass next time, Father Edwin or myself or Father Bob will take up the Blessed Sacrament by that point and hold it in front of you and say what? Behold the Lamb of God. Blessed are those called to the Supper of the Lamb. My one criticism of the Missal, I wish it said the Marriage Supper. Because that's what it is. It's a Marriage Supper. Which is why, in some lingo, um, doesn't really apply to me, because I'm a weird married priest. Um, but Father Edwin's uh, vestments uh, are his wedding garments, right? You know, he's going to be buried in them even. Um, we're planning on it. The, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, now, finally, again, this brilliant, I'm sorry I'm going long. This, bril this is the last quote, I promise. This brilliant bringing together of so many themes like shut up and talk uh, of so many themes the lamb theme the sacrifice theme the covenant theme the wedding theme are all put together and they're reinserted and rested into the great theme of the redemption of Eden this is the very end of Revelation here in green then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And uh, also on either side of the river, uh, the, tr the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The, uh, my favorite line here, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. 
and his servants will worship him. Right? What happened in Eden? Adam and Eve sinned. They hid. God went after them and said, Adam, where are you? And then out of the justice of God, they had to be expelled from Eden. Because, and God could no longer walk with them in the cool of the day, as it says. But here we see its redemption. It says, uh, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll be together again. Right? They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Eden is reprised. The consummation of all things, is everything is brought full circle. When the Eucharist is carried out to its final end, it's masterful, this view of the Eucharist and its significance for us. Uh, so I'm going to stop there.